The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Well, we're making our way through the book of Philippians thinking about what it means to be a people of joy in an age of despair. Spoiler alert, in case you didn't know this, the Bible exists to spur you to trust in Jesus, to spur you to stake everything on Jesus as we talked about last week. And, and one question I want you to think about this morning is simply this, is trusting in Jesus the answer for everyone or is it just for some people? One of the geniuses of America is that it was founded on freedom of religion, right? First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Our founders wanted a nation where Christians and Mormons and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and atheists could all peacefully coexist. And that sort of pluralistic democracy is an amazing achievement in the history of the world. But one of the problems of pluralism is that it trains us, it shapes us to think of religion as a personal and private pursuit. That's great that you worship Jesus Christ. Just leave everybody else free to do their own thing. You do you. And this is one of the places where the message of Christianity challenges our cultural assumptions. Because on the one hand, Every human being is free to choose what God they will worship. Christianity is a non-coercive religion. It advances by persuasion, not coercion. It invites people to worship and trust in Jesus and leaves them free to make the decisions they will make. And on the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a matter of public truth. In other words, it's not a private message just for some people who find meaning in it. It's a public message that has implications for every human being, no matter what they do with it. See, the gospel is a proclamation about facts of history. It's an assertion that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That as we just professed in the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate at a real time, in a real place, in real history. And that his resurrection, therefore, has implications for every human being. All men seek happiness, wrote Blaise Pascal in 1670. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. 
This happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. All of us are on a relentless quest for happiness. That's why we do what we do. We long for fulfillment and satisfaction. And the problem, as the Rolling Stones reminded us, is that satisfaction is more elusive than we think. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, the Apostle Paul is making this simple point. Satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. That's the simple message of this text. Satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. Wherever you're looking for satisfaction and for happiness and for fulfillment, you're not going to find it until you find it in Christ. Now, I want you to think for a minute about all the books you've read and all the movies you've seen and all the great stories that have shaped human civilization. Everything from Homer's Odyssey to Hamilton, okay? Every compelling story I would propose to you follows one of these four trajectories. How will I find wealth? How will I find home? How will I find vindication? How will I find companionship? I would submit to you that most of the stories we tell and most of the stories that have shaped our world for centuries are answers to one of those four questions. They're oriented around those four themes. Let's think about it for a minute together, shall we? Let's just do movies. Movies about finding wealth. Ocean's Eleven. The Big Short. The Italian Job. How will we get the big payoff and get all the money? Movies about finding home. The Wizard of Oz, Finding Nemo, Interstellar, oops, really far from home in that movie, right? <laughs> Got to get back to the planet. A hero has gone out into the world and he needs to find his way back to home, and home is a place of stability and safety and security. Movies about finding vindication, Shawshank Redemption, A Few Good Men, also every Clint Eastwood film ever made. <laughs> Wrongs need to be righted. Evil needs to be avenged. Truth needs to be brought to light. That's what vindication movies are all about. Finally, movies about finding companionship. Everything from Toy Story to Lord of the Rings to Pride and Prejudice. Of course, there are many stories that are a combination of these themes. It doesn't have to be only one of them. For instance, in Ocean's Eleven, Danny Ocean gets the money, but he also gets tests, right? Or in Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie gets Mr. Darby or Darcy or whatever his name is. <laughs> but she also gets a really big estate and lots of money. So let's be honest about that. <laughs> we will be satisfied, these stories tell us, when we find wealth, home, vindication, or companionship. Our culture loves to tell these stories. They resonate with something deep within us. And what Christians sometimes do is to say, well, you know what? You're not going to find satisfaction in those things. Instead, you can only find it in Jesus. And that's partially true. But the deeper truth is this, that for centuries, human beings have sought wealth and home and vindication and companionship because God has placed within us a longing for those things. And that longing 
is only satisfied in Jesus. Or to say it another way, the answer isn't to stop seeking those things and start seeking Jesus. The answer is to seek those things until they drive you to Jesus. That's what's happened for the Apostle Paul. And that's what he longs to awaken in you as well. Paul's conviction in Philippians 3 is, listen, if you're a human being and you see how truly satisfying Jesus is, you will come to him. You will come to Jesus once you see how truly satisfying he is, how much better he is than every other source of satisfaction. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes, Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. But if a trans-temporal, trans-finite good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes will not truly satisfy. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Jesus is that flower. Jesus is that tune. Jesus is that country. Jesus is the soul's true satisfaction. And so let me show you in this beautiful paragraph of Scripture these four simple truths. Jesus is wealth. Jesus is home. Jesus is righteousness. And Jesus is companion. First, Jesus is wealth. Look at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So notice the language of gain and loss. In this passage, this is accounting language. This is value language. This is financial language. What something is worth depends entirely on the value someone places on it. Back in 2006, 84 year old Edith Macefield was offered $1 million for her tiny little cottage on Northwest 46th Street in Seattle. A developer had plans to revitalize the block and had already purchased all the surrounding real estate. And $1 million was a generous offer, especially in 2006. But Edith Macefield stubbornly declined the offer. I don't need the money, she said. She had lived on the block since 1950, and she was not interested in moving. And so the developer ended up building his five-story commercial complex around her 108-year-old farmhouse. If this photo looks familiar to you, 
The reason it looks familiar is because Edith Macefield's story was the inspiration for the 2009 Pixar movie, Up. Carl Fredrickson's house is Edith Macefield's house. To the developer, this property was worth $1 million. But to Edith Macefield, its value was much greater than that. Likewise, in Paul's life, there were things he once regarded as valuable. But once he realized the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, he reassessed everything. What was gain was now lost. What was valuable now became less valuable. In Jesus' teaching, he taught us this famous principle that your heart follows your treasure. Do you remember that? When Jesus told his disciples, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he taught that as a way of causing us to reflect on the grip that money can have on our hearts and therefore on our lives. Jesus was applying it to money, but Paul has taken that same principle and applying it to Christ. He's saying, look, when you really know the value of Jesus Christ, when you really see what he's worth, if he is truly your treasure, then your heart will be given over to him. Your heart follows your treasure, and when you see how valuable Jesus is, when you see that he is true wealth, that reorients everything about your life. Jesus is wealth. Is he wealth to you? Is he your treasure? Second, Jesus is home. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. This language of being found is the same word that we saw in chapter 2 where it says that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The idea is this. If you had lived in Palestine in the first century AD and you had found Jesus, you had encountered him on the street or in the synagogue, you would have found him to be a human being. He became flesh and dwelt among us, the Apostle John writes. Jesus made human flesh and blood his home for the sake of our salvation. And now Paul is saying, I want to be found in him. I want to make him my home. Alex Mateer, a New Testament commentator, says it this way, Jesus is Paul's permanent address. Whether Paul is in Rome or in Philippi or in Jerusalem or wherever he might be, the main thing he wants to be true of him is that he wants to be in Christ. He wants to dwell in Christ. He wants to be found in him, united with him. Notice this is not the language of belief. It's the language of solidarity. What matters is not that you believe in Jesus intellectually. What matters is that you are in solidarity with him, that you are united with him, that you are found in him, that you dwell in him. In order to get a, a fuller picture of what Paul is describing here, let's go back 
to one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, one that probably all of you are familiar with, the story of David and Goliath. If you remember that story back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, here's what happens. The Philistines are the enemies of Israel, and they are coming to war against Israel, and so the armies line up. The Philistines have this champion named Goliath. He's a large, intimidating warrior, and they send him out, and he taunts the Israelites and says, hey, just pick someone and have them fight me. Do you have anyone who you would put up against me? In fact, here's exactly what he says, 1 Samuel 17, verse 8. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Do you see what's being set up here? What's happening here is, the Israelites are going to be found in David and the Philistines are going to be found in Goliath. These two fighters, these two warriors, represent their people. And the destiny of either one of them becomes the destiny of the people. So if Goliath wins and David loses, the Israelites lose. If David wins and the Israelites win, the Philistines lose. Their destiny is bound up with their representative. And the same is true in the gospel. What does it mean to be found in Jesus? It means that the people of Jesus, their destiny is bound up in him. What is true of Jesus is true of them. The victory Jesus wins becomes their victory. The future Jesus has is their future. That's what it means to be found in him, to be represented by him. Jesus is home. Paul says, whoever I am and wherever I go in the world, I want to be in Christ. I want to be represented by connected to Jesus. I want him to be my champion. I want him to be my representative. Jesus is home. Home is a place of stability, groundedness. Wherever you've run off to, wherever your restless heart has taken you, it's time to come home to Jesus and be found in him. Jesus is wealth. Jesus is home. Third, Jesus is righteousness. Verse 9 again. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, anytime we come across language of righteousness, it starts to feel churchy and bible and religious. But listen, to be righteous is simply to be morally vindicated, to be in the right. There's a fascinating book that came out about 10 years ago by John Haidt, who is a social psychologist at New York University. And he says this, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. He says, every culture and every human is obsessed with righteousness. Am I in the right? How do we determine who's right and who's wrong? What's good and what's bad? That's a question every society has, and it's a question every individual has. We have an obsession with being in the right. And this text shows us there's only two options for how we get righteousness. Option number one, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Or to say it another way, 
self-righteousness. Your attempts to establish moral superiority over other people. Relying on a righteousness of your own always causes you to look down on other people who are less righteous according to that standard. This is the nature of how our minds and our hearts work. Now, Paul speaks here of a righteousness that comes from the law because remember, he's a Jewish man and the primary way that a Jewish man would seek to establish moral rectitude is by keeping the law. But that's not the only shape this righteousness of your own can take. We create it out of all kinds of things. So let me just give you some examples. Let's just do some some hypotheses. I'm gonna use this section of the room right here, okay? Someone sitting in this section is really, I don't know who it is. I'm not not like talking about somebody that I know who it is, but you don't. I'm just saying, of a room of 150 people or so, someone sitting here is really, some of you are really good with like finances. You're really wise, you're shrewd, you have a, a good budget, you pay off your debts, you live within your means, you probably have savings set aside, and so you're just very diligent about financial stewardship and you're very good at that. And if that's you, if you're that kind of a person, You know what tends to happen? You tend to look down on other people who just can't get their financial act together, who just don't live on a budget, who don't keep track of their expenses, who aren't good with saving and spending. You tend to think like, we'll get it figured out. Like Dave Ramsey has a thing for this, you know? Just do the thing. So some some of you who are very good with finances, you look down on other people who don't have that same kind of moral goodness. But then there's probably somebody in this section who you're a very disciplined person. You live your life by sort of a rigorous discipline. So you get up at a certain time, you're disciplined about working out, you're disciplined about what you eat and how you eat and when you eat, and you you just live your life according to sort of a routine and a schedule, and you're very committed to that. And so your life kind of runs well because you have a good pattern of discipline. And if that's you, you know what's gonna happen? You tend to look down on people that just don't have any discipline. They just can't figure out how to eat right or sleep right or work out right or, you know, have work-life balance. And you're like, well, just, just apply the discipline. Like, what's wrong with you? Right? So your self-righteousness tends to come from discipline. But then there's probably somebody over in this section that you're just very theologically astute. You read a lot. You think a lot. You're a good thinker. You, you know that God has called us to think well about him and about his word and about his character. And so you're theologically attuned and you read and you study. You probably are prone to a certain kind of theological righteousness where it's like when someone doesn't understand something about God, you're like, well, just read, read a book. Like, I've got seven books on that topic here. Just take one. Like, what's, what's wrong with you, right? So, so you're measuring your righteousness by finances and by your financial wisdom, and you're measuring it by discipline and how structured you are, and you're measuring it by how theologically astute you are. Meanwhile, we're all judging each other who aren't like us. Welcome to humanity, Right? That's how a righteousness of your own works. Not only does it not commend you before God, it makes you judgmental of other people because the only way you can be in the right is if they're in the wrong. Paul says, I don't want that kind of righteousness. Here's the kind I want. That which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The word order in the Greek text here literally says, the from God righteousness. 
Not the from self-righteousness, but the from God righteousness that depends on faith. That which comes through faith in Christ. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And here's what Paul is talking about in this simple verse. He's talking about the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to take your unrighteousness upon himself and to give you his righteousness in replacement. There's this double exchange that happens. You are unrighteous. You have failed to live up to God's standard. You've failed to live up to your own standard. You know deep down that you have failed to be the person that you ought to be, that society requires you to be, that you wish you were. All of us know that we have failed and failed to be righteous as God requires. And in the gospel, Jesus takes upon himself our unrighteousness. He bears it in himself on the cross, and he gives us his perfect righteousness, his full obedience, his beautiful obedience to the law of God, all the things he did perfectly that we didn't, they get credited to us. That's what Paul's talking about, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, that you didn't earn, it's not yours, you didn't work for it, and guess what else? You can't be self-righteous about it because it wasn't yours. You're not better than anyone else. You don't deserve it more than anyone else. You didn't do anything that someone else didn't do. Jesus just gave it to you because he's gracious. A righteousness from God that comes through faith. I just get it by receiving Jesus' grace. Jesus is righteousness, see? So the question is, is he your righteousness? Are you still trying to build a righteousness of your own through your own moral striving? Or have you come to the end of yourself and received a from God righteousness in and through Jesus? Jesus is wealth. Jesus is home. Jesus is righteousness. And finally, Jesus is companion. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him. Remember that the word know in the Bible is not a cerebral intellectual word. It speaks of personal relational knowledge. It's a friendship word. It's a relationship word. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of Christ dwelling in me, that Jesus, risen from the dead, has power available to me, that he wants to dwell in me and give me a whole new way of living by the power of his resurrection and his presence. And that I may share in his sufferings. The word share here is literally the word koinonia, which means fellowship or communion. What it's getting at is I have a companion in suffering. I'm not alone in my suffering. Jesus suffered first. Jesus suffered best. And Jesus is with his people in their suffering. So I can share in his sufferings. In fact, when I suffer as a Christian, I am just sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Becoming like him in his death. Humble. Lowly. Remember the whole pattern of Philippians 2 that we looked at a few weeks back where it says Jesus humbled himself and therefore was exalted. Why is he now exalted at the right hand of the Father so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, first he humbled himself to the point of death. 
So the pattern of your life in Christ is the same. You are with him in glory and you are also with him in suffering. And he says, I want to be like him in his death. I want to bear pain, suffering, difficulty, hardship, darkness, the way Jesus bore it. I want to experience his companionship in the dark and hard places of life. I want to experience his friendship in those places, knowing that God hasn't abandoned me there, but he's with me there. And how do I know that? Because Jesus walked that road himself. And then finally, that I may attain, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Doesn't that sound like Paul doesn't, doesn't really know if he's going to get resurrected or not? It's like, maybe somehow I can be resurrected from the dead. Well, the language here actually isn't conditional. It's not hypothetical. What he's getting at is, remember, the resurrection from the dead, when Paul uses that language, he's talking about life after life after death. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the coming kingdom. He's talking about final resurrection. So what Paul is saying is, I want to know Christ I want to know the power of his resurrection now in my life. I want to know his fellowship in my sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. When I die, I want Christ's presence with me in my death because I know that one day I'm going to attain the resurrection from the dead because Jesus is bringing me with him when he comes in his kingdom. That's what Paul has in mind. Not sure what's going to happen between now and then. Not sure what my future holds in life. But what I'm aiming at, what I'm hoping for, what I want to attain is the resurrection from the dead because of union and fellowship with Christ. So what Paul has in view here is a whole life companionship with Jesus. Why can Paul say, I count all things as rubbish. Take anything away from me. doesn't matter what I lose. Didn't want it anyway. It's all trash because I have Jesus. Why can he say that? Because he's gained in Jesus the deepest friendship the deepest companionship, the deepest fellowship there is. Jesus is companion. Is he your companion? Is Jesus an idea or a concept to you, or is Jesus a friend? So let's go back to where we began this morning. And let me ask you this simple question. Where are you expecting to find satisfaction? Where are you expecting to find satisfaction? I think there are two kinds of people in the room this morning. First, there are those of you who are still looking for satisfaction. Maybe you're chasing wealth. Maybe you're trying to find your way home, trying to find a place of stability and security. Maybe you're looking for vindication. Maybe you're seeking companionship. This morning, through his word and through his people, Jesus is inviting you to be satisfied in him. To all who are still seeking satisfaction, Jesus says, what I have, I give to you. Come and find it in me. The second group of people that are in the room are those who have found and are finding satisfaction in Jesus 
mostly. <laughs> right? I mean, let's be honest. If your heart is like mine, there are a lot of substitute satisfactions on offer, aren't there? And so even when you have found and are finding satisfaction in Jesus, we still live in a world that's going to say to you every single day, hey, he's not as satisfying as you thought. What about this? What about this over here? Wouldn't you be more satisfied if you had these things? So the fact is, those of us who have found and are finding satisfaction in Jesus, mostly, are still tempted to find satisfaction and fulfillment in other places. And for you, I want you to hear the language that Paul uses in this passage. In verse 8, notice what he says. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What Paul is giving you there is a hint on how to apply the gospel to your own heart. What he's saying is, intellectually I know that Christ is the surpassing value, that he's the thing I really need. He's my deepest treasure. I know that. I don't live every day as though that's true. I don't always feel that. So what do I have to do when I feel the gap between something I know and something I experience? The answer is, I have to count everything as loss. I have to balance the budget again. I have to go back and do the work of asking, okay, is this thing really going to satisfy me? No, 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 it's not. Paul is showing us that part of the discipline of the Christian life is always coming back to and being reminded of how satisfying Jesus is and getting used to comparing him to the other things we're, we're prone to find satisfaction in. And you know what? Most of us don't have the courage to do that. Rarely have I heard someone say to me, I just find this more satisfying than Jesus. But that's what we're all doing. When we sin, when we walk away from the Lord, when we find our identity and worth in other places, what you're really saying is, I like this more than Jesus. It's more satisfying to me. Just get used to being honest about that in your own heart. And in your prayers and in your community saying, you know what? There's something I'm prone to find is more satisfying than Jesus. Would you pray for me? Can you remind me of the gospel? Can you speak the word of God to me and remind me again of what Jesus has done for me? Because I got to count it as loss again. I got to do the math again. I got to remind myself of who Jesus is and how much more satisfying he is. So, this text is an invitation to that kind of repentance and faith. And it's freedom, hopefully, for those of you that are like, I guess it's a binary choice. Either I'm satisfied in Jesus or I'm not. No. The reality of the Christian life is you are satisfied in Jesus, mostly. And you need to continue to preach the gospel to yourself and to remind yourself of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In 1965, the Rolling Stones released I Can't Get No Satisfaction. It is one of the most popular songs ever. And I think the reason is because in both lyrics and music, it captures the relentless hunger for satisfaction that human beings have. And the fact that though we long for it, we can't seem to find it. Now, when that song was released, Mick Jagger was 22 years old. 
And so that song particularly sort of rehearses all the places that young people are, tended to, are prone to find satisfaction in sex and fame and money and rebellion. But that song says something deeply human, doesn't it? Last month, the Rolling Stones released a brand new album. Mick Jagger is now 80 years old. 58 years of reflection. And the final track on that new album is a song called Sweet Sounds of Heaven. Without making any prognostications about where Mick Jagger is with the Lord, I want to read you the lyrics of that song. The last verse says this, I'm going to laugh, I'm going to cry, eat the bread, drink the wine because I'm finally, finally quenching my thirst. I'm not sure where Mick Jagger is with Jesus, but I can't help but wonder if maybe he's on the verge of true satisfaction. And this morning, I want you to know that Jesus invites you to eat the bread, to drink the wine, and to finally quench your thirst. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for all the places we have looked for satisfaction. Forgive us for not counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you this morning help us to see with new eyes that Jesus is wealth, that Jesus is home, that Jesus is righteousness, and that Jesus is our truest companion. Draw our hearts to you in repentance and in faith and in worship. Help us see with fresh vision the glory of all that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be truly satisfied in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.